Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. You know, Tyler, one of the amazing states on the American shoreline is Florida, incredibly well-known. The Sunshine State. Uh, And, uh, you know, a principal part of that state and why it's so popular with tourists is because of the waters around that state. And uh, we've got a guest today to talk about the Florida coastline from the perspective of water and water quality. It is well known that Florida's coastal waters and waterways are the heart of the state's economy. It's what makes this such a beautiful state to visit. The great beaches, the bays, and the estuaries, a fantastic place. But there are issues and problems, and we have a great guest today to help us understand the issues all around the state of Florida's coastline. That's right, Peter. So, uh, you know, you pretty much covered it all right there. Florida is a hugely important state. Uh, We all know that on the American shoreline. Go to coastnewstoday.com, and the percentage of stories that are Florida stories is pretty high. It is. And also, you know, a good chunk of our audience is in Florida, ladies and gentlemen. That's you. You are probably in Florida. So uh, we thought that we would go, and by the way, that's not true probably. You're probably (laughs) not in Florida, but there's a chunk of you that are. Big percentage of the audience. It's not the majority of the pie. No, but it's a it's Big a chunk. It's a handsome slice. It is, and uh, we thought it'd be fun for the rest of us, the majority of the pie, who do not know Florida uh, that well, to learn more about it and take a tour around the state, as you just said. And I've got to say, as a California kid, uh, we kind of had a, a rivalry with Florida, <laughs> and so I just was kind of ignorant about. Florida, you know, oranges, they did oranges, we did oranges. You guys got avocados. I guess, yeah, I, I'm not going to get competitive about it, but <laughs> we we've, we felt like the citrus thing was a little competitive. So, we are looking forward to talking to Terry Gibson today, a uh, great guest, and uh, we're going to learn more about him and take a tour. But before we do it, let's have a word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by... LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA.com. Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants offers high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, and the skilled and respectful crews to get your project built. Make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring the dune and wetland ecology of your home or barrier island. Learn more at coastaltransplants.com. Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at dunesciencegroup.com. And be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at coastalnewstoday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. 
That's C-H-L-O-E at CoastalNewsToday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. And we have a special guest today, Tyler, Terry Gibson, who is the co-founder and director of the American Water Security Project, a nonprofit organization in St. Pete, Florida. It's a coalition of businesses and scientists and engineers and policy experts and outdoor enthusiasts and conservation advocates, an, an amazing coalition organization that is exists to protect the waters and the water bodies of the great state of Florida. So Terry Gibson, uh, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast, and thanks for taking the time out of your schedule to talk to our audience. Oh, thank you guys. It's, it's an honor. Well, Terry, uh, I'm really looking forward to learning about the waters of Florida with you. But before we uh, start our trip around the state, would you uh, tell us more about yourself? What's your what's your story? How did you get involved in the American Water Security Project? Well, so I'm the government affairs director, so I essentially do most of the outreach to our elected officials and um, agency folks. Um, but AWSP, which I'll call it from here on out, was founded a little over three years ago by a group of veterans in the water policy space, um, primarily because we just didn't think that many of the other environmental groups were really looking at it holistically enough. They were looking at quality, but not just but quality alone. And it's more than that. You know, we're running out of water here, too, and the water we have is very dirty. So we have to think about it holistically in terms of treating it to advanced levels and, and recycling it optimally, whether that's to, to rehydrate a wetland or to irrigate a golf course or um, to, to irrigate a farm um, or even recycle it to drinking water standards. We're, we're all headed in that direction. But what got me to that point and is, you know, I'm, I was born and raised here in West Palm Beach, and I grew up the, the son of, um, of really, excuse me, avid hunters and anglers, and I learned to surf growing up, and I learned to dive, and just got really tired of watching beautiful things suffer or even disappear. And so, um, you know, we, in, in all of my team has that same sense of pathos. So we, we've, we've got this organization together. We did our best to fundraise and we did our best to plan a political strategy to start moving the state policy in that direction. And in, in three short years, we've been, we've been very successful. Um, but the good news is, is that most of the places that are suffering are, are fixable. And you know, as we move around the state, I'll talk a little bit about what we need to do to make sure that we support these ecosystems that support us economically and in so many other ways. So, Terry, you know, when we uh, worked uh, back in the Minnesota Key Project, Peter and I did the funding plan over there for their beach renourishment project. And uh, we heard a lot of people talk about this concept called Old Florida. It's a kind of an architecture concept. And it, and, uh, it, it calls back to this, like, almost, I don't know, Art Deco style and references this this period of Florida history that uh, I would love to get your thoughts as someone who grew up in the state. When you say you saw, you've seen it change, what's changed in your lifetime? What was Florida like when you were a kid? And what is it like now? And, and, and what's changed? The short version is there's a lot more people, about 21 million people here. And I can't say that our growth management um, planning was has ever been great and it's been non-existent in the past few past uh, 
to election cycles. Um, so, you know, I was very fortunate. My family's been here since about, I mean, I know that my grandfather came here in 1907. Um, I don't know how much longer my, my other, the other side of my family was here a little after that, but I have all these pictures of, of West Palm beach from, you know, dating back to, to the early 20th century and pictures of my grandfather, um, with a spear gun in his hand and, and, and giant mutton and red snappers in his hand. And so I have a sense of the shifting baselines, you know, that species of snapper no longer occurs in Southeast Florida. It's too warm for them, at least the, the red snapper. And I grew up, you know, partially in the, in the, in the glades. My family has a small farm in the Everglades agricultural area. And I got to know those farmers and ranchers very well growing up. I got to, to hunt and fish there uh, out there. And, and those families have been here for, you know, four five, six, eight generations. And, uh, t- and t- to watch, you know, I, I got to, to see, I've, I've had to endure watching some of these ranches um, go through what we call the terminal crop of concrete. You know, they've been developed, and fragmented, and it's hard to it's hard to to drive by a place where you used to put up five or six coveys of quail a day, um, hunting, and and see, you know, it's golf course now. Not that there's anything wrong with golf, but um, you know, but to, to your question, what is old Florida? It's hard to define. It's certainly something nostalgic. This group, this, this state has, um, you know, grown so fast in such a short period of time. It's kind of wherever you checked into Florida first. It's it's very interesting, and I I just I know we're gonna went on our tour. Of course, mm-hmm. we're gonna hang out in the Everglades quickly mm-hmm. before we get too many mosquito bites. Right. But I, I've got to ask: are, Would you consider yourself a gladesman? In a sense, yes. I mean, I, I learned to hunt and fish, pull a boat run an airboat, fly fish and cast a bait casting rod. And I I'm capable of growing things. I'm capable of skinning things. Um, and I've made a living, you know, part time as a hunting and fishing guide here off and on throughout my career. So, so yes. Awesome. I've, I've, I love that concept. It's so regional. You know, I think we, we think of, uh, Louisiana, Peter, as you know, these kind of bayou, uh, one with, you know, it's, it's just a very cool oneness with nature concept. Yeah. And, uh, gladesman here we, we have on the, on the show, similar, similar, uh, use the word pathos before I kind of want to use the word ethos. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, the pathos of the problem. And, uh, that's where we want to turn our attention, Terry. And, uh, Tyler and I were, are interested in kind of doing this geographically, starting up in the northeast corner of the state on the border of Georgia and working our way down the Atlantic shoreline uh, to the Keys and up the Gulf side, up to the panhandle of Florida. Uh, the organization, uh, the American Water Security Project, uh, focuses a lot of attention on the threats to the state's waterways and shorelines and advocates for solutions and better policies but uh, we want to focus on the threats in the shorelines and get to know these shoreline areas a little bit and what's at stake Um, so can we start up at the georgia border and educate our audience a little bit about what goes on there what is that shoreline like and what are the threats of concern in that region of the state Sure. I mean, right there, you have Fernandina Beach, one of my favorite places in Florida. Uh, if you Google my name, Terry Gibson, and visit Florida, you'll see some videos and some articles I've written about fishing up there. Um, it is just an amazing salt marsh ecosystem. With these these keys up there that are just covered in, in towering uh, about live oaks and cabbage palms, sable palms, as they're properly called. 
you know, Spartina grass everywhere. They have big tides and the, the redfish, the red drum move up into the tides to feed up onto the, into the Spartina grass as the tides flood them to feed on the fiddler crabs and other stuff that they can't get to when the, when the tide's out. And it's just an amazing, amazing fly fishing opportunity. I love to fly fish and that's one of my favorite uh, situations to fly fish in. I mean, these redfish are in like six or eight inches of water and they're dipping up with their tails straight in the air, blue tinged black spotted tails straight in the air while they're eating crabs and you get to throw a crab fly at them and hope that they eat it and you don't get snagged on any Spartana grass. Um, it's a, Gosh, what else can I? What, there's so much to say about Fernandina what, Beach. Let me let me jump in here and just ask, like, what's the? I've never been to this part of of uh, uh, the state. I have been to Savannah, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, could, give me a little, like, what's the what's the vibe like there? It's flat bottomland, I imagine. A lot of uh, river runoff. What what are the headwaters of of the water that's coming into that zone? The freshwater. Yeah. So uh, there's a lot of river systems coming in there, uh, down from Georgia. Um, I think that the, uh, what's the famous swamp there in Georgia, uh, feeds into, into that area. You know, the St. John's river comes out just below Fernandina beach in Jacksonville certainly has an influence, but it, it is basically the same, you know, geologic and ecological coastline as you would see in Savannah. Um, some differences, but not, not too much. Uh, it's, you know, it's vast dendritic, you know, nerve-like river systems coming out with tannin-stained water and, and this gorgeous Spartina grass that just turns bright gold in the early morning or late afternoon light. And same with the live oaks. Um, literally hear the, the live oaks dropping acorns into the, into the water. Into the water. Um, there's a huge bridge over, over the river there that's really interesting and really um, really great vantage point to watch a sunrise or a sunset and great place to fish. It's just a really mellow laid back place. It's, it's certainly the South still. That's, that's, a, you know, something that's disappeared, disappearing from Florida as a Southern influence, but you know, the, those manners, the cuisine, all those sorts of things. It's all the New Yorkers that. coming down. That's the problem. <laughs> nah, it's not what I meant. <laughs> but, uh, uh, well, what it, it sounds like a, a beautiful shoreline, and I do think the Georgia coast is underappreciated, uh, and this region of the U.S. is pretty incredible. Uh, the city of Jacksonville is in this region, uh, the port of Jacksonville, uh, Fernandina Beach, uh, incredible place. From a water quality, water supply perspective, from the uh, American Water Security Project perspective, what are the threats and issues to this fantastic habitat that's out in this region of the state. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it all boils down to poorly planned development. Um, the, a lot of the headwaters up in the Fernandina Beach area, they're still pretty rural and uh, the pollution issues are, 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 aren't, so, aren't so serious. But you get down into suburbia and the urban areas of Jacksonville, the septic tanks are a major problem. Stormwater runoff is a, is a major problem. And Remember that the St. John's is one of the few north flowing rivers in the country. And it's the only one in the state. And it begins all the way down around Vero Beach, which is, you know, sort of the central, south central Florida um, in the Blue Cypress Lake. So it's picking up everything, every fertilizer, every septic tank, all the septic tank effluent, some places industrial effluent and carrying it all the way out to the to the Atlantic Ocean up in Jacksonville. So mm-hmm. um, it's not a simple system, and in terms of to fix, um, 
and it's it's also one that's overtaxed in terms of water use. There's a great deal of conversation now about how to optimally treat and recycle wastewater and stormwater and even to potable reuse standards because Florida's run, running out of water in some areas, just growing too fast. More people, more demand on the system, both from a water supply standpoint and more waste. Uh, one of the stunning t- statistics on the website and for folks listening to the show, it's awsproject.org. Uh, I'd encourage you to pull that site up as you listen to the show if you can. But this is a statistic that struck me. 40% of Floridians rely on on-site sewage treatment or septic systems. Uh, 2.6 million systems in the state of Florida. That is a massive problem, it seems, and a massive infrastructure issue. Is Are we still installing septic systems in Florida, or have we moved on to uh, centralized treatment for uh, wastewater? Well, those are the, the septic tanks we know about. Let me put it that way. <laughs> it's a lot higher than 40%, surely. Um, in some places, and thanks to the Clean Waterways Act, which we passed this year, uh, there are fairly aggressive efforts to do septic to sewer conversions to get folks onto a master wastewater collection system, as it's called. But there are um, weaknesses in that law that will allow more development um, on septic tanks, although better systems are encouraged through the law. But still, if you think about a septic tank, it, it pollutes by design. It holds the solids back, but it releases all the nutrients. And it's like squeezing a you know an orange. The, the nutrients are in the juice, not in the in the rind, so to speak. And so you know, I mean, there's you know, if you're out in the middle of nowhere and you're the only septic tank for you know a couple acres around you, it's not that big of a deal. The ground can absorb it. But you know, if you're in a floodplain, you're on a in a coastal setting. I mean, you're just, your wastewater effluent in the average household, it's about a hundred gallons a day, day um, estimate, if I remember correctly from the EPA website, you know, is, is just of phosphorus and nitrogen and plus all the pathogens are going straight into the groundwater and onto the surface water. Wow. That's a lot. Now, Terry, let's back up a little bit and talk a little, talk about, uh, again, this, how Florida has you talk about population boom. Uh, people have been moving out. Um, what all these all these septic tanks are these being fueled by suburban development strictly? Uh, what what's driving the use of septic tanks? Why why are they why are they using these? In terms of new growth, uh, it's it's typically you know the as the as the suburbs in, um, encroach upon the interior of the state, developers don't typically want to wait around until um, until the local municipality installs water and sewer. So they just build on septic tanks. Um, and, and, and they certainly don't want to pay for it themselves. Um, they're great. They're great at passing off their costs on the public. But it, some of them are just old. I mean, in Miami-Dade and Broward, I mean, they weren't a problem 50 years ago and some of these systems are that old, but now, you know, because of sea level rise and more intense flooding from the, from more intense rainfall events, these things are just under flat out underwater. If not all the time, every time, you know, during big tides. Can, can I just ask a quick follow up? I know Peter wants to get in here, but you know, when I'm, I've been to I'm Fort Lauderdale, I'm leaving tomorrow for Fort Lauderdale. 
But uh, question is, when you s- help me understand when I'm flying over Florida, how much of it is, <laughs> you know, when I'm looking at these developments that are frankly everywhere, ladies and gentlemen, Florida is lined along the shoreline with lots of development. Uh, how much of this is on septic? Like, you know, if you were to put it as a percentage. I mean, but the state's numbers are about half. About half of us rely on. I rely on. I'm totally ashamed of it. I just can't get in there. I finally got Martin County to come in here, and and over the next ten years, they're going to get the rest of Jensen Beach off of uh, off of septic tanks. But I mean, I'm looking at the Indian River Lagoon as I talk to you. The most, and I'm looking at the most species diverse section of the most species diverse estuary in North America, and it's dead. Dead. Let's talk about that, and let's slide down a little bit okay. south, get down to Indian River Lagoon in the Space Coast area, Cocoa Beach and uh, Cape Canaveral area. Um, I, I'm, I really am interested in what you just said. Um, we know that this is uh, these systems are not designed to support dense development. Uh, as you said, an occasional septic system on an acre or somewhere is perfectly fine and natural and not a threat to the groundwater uh and water quality when is it is the impact of septic systems measurable uh on the water quality of florida near shore waters and what does it do what do these nutrients what are the problems that they create i'd like to answer that question in reverse okay so not all nutrient pollution is created equal some of it's much worse than others that's because some of it's much more as they say biologically available that means the bugs have worked on it and the harmful algal blooms can chew it up and eat it like crazy. And plus it's got the, just the right types of nitrogen. Uh, if we're going to talk about a saltwater system, you got just the right types of salt of, of, of nitrogen, ammonia, ammonium. that's just super food for these harmful algal blooms. They just, they'll eat it preferentially every time. If it's a freshwater system, it's nit- nitrogen limited. I mean, you've got all the phosphates in the world in wastewater from everything that comes out of your, of your uh, digestive system to, you know, your soaps and stuff that you use in your um, sinks and showers and uh, so on. So it's incredibly bad for these ecosystems, such as the Indian River Lagoon, which are naturally oligotrophic. They, they are nutrient poor. They are very, they're like great athletes. They recycle nutrients optimally, nothing to waste. But as my dear friend, Dr. Peter Brill, our, our um, science expert often says, what we did was we took great athletes and we fed them Twinkies, lots of them. And it's okay if you're in good shape to have some junk food every now and then. You have one or two Twinkies, you might even like get your blood sugar up enough where you really want to go for a run or swim or surf. But if you eat 10, you're going to go lie on the, the floor of your bathroom and your sugar's you know, so out of whack. And that's a metaphor, but that's what's happened to the River Lagoon. It's, it's hyper-eutrophic. It's not just eutrophic, it's hyper-eutrophic. It is just so chock full of nutrients the dominant biomass is harmful algae. Wow. And we've had, and for listeners out there, uh, I'm going to give a plug to a previous show back in September uh, 2019. We had on the show Dr. James Sullivan, who described himself as Dr. Doom of the Algal Bloom at the Center for Coastal uh, and Human Health at uh, Florida Atlantic University, the Harbor Branch Oceanographic Institute, an expert on it who really described for me and I think our great audience, show go back and listen to that one yeah go back and find that one it's September 23rd 2019 but but the implications of harmful algal blooms is significant when you're talking about ecosystem health and human health and uh, 
is there is there a is there an effort to to tackle the problem in Indian River Lagoon, uh, an issue we've covered a lot on on Coastal News Today, Tyler, and it's uh, it's been pretty dramatic there. Can you educate our audience a little bit about what the state of that beautiful estuary bay is? Yeah, and maybe and maybe give us a, a contrast because I think I think mm-hmm. our audience would be interested to know like what in its pristine, you know, yeah, form. Yeah, what 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 are we talking about? You, you described it as the most diverse estuary, I believe. That's that's sure. that's high praise. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Sullivan's a great scientist. I'm glad you had him on board. He knows the system as well as anyone. Um, and so, the Indian River Lagoon is 156 miles long. It starts just south of Daytona Beach, New Smyrna Beach, and terminus, reaches a terminus in the southern end in, in Jupiter, Florida, in the north end of Palm Beach County at the Loxahatchee River. This area in the southern end, I live on the, in the Stewart area. Um, we're kind of on the border. We are on the border of, the, of the, what was his, at least historically been the tropical and the temperate zone. And the Gulf Stream comes very close to the coast. And we had, you know, lush mangrove forests, carpets of seagrass from one end of the lagoon to the other, um, oysters and other bivalve reefs. Um, just, I mean, it was impossible to starve here. And I'm talking, you know, 100 years ago, not even I'm talking, you know, post-World War II. And so, you know, the Gulf Stream brings in all this larvae from everywhere as far away as the Caribbean to from the Keys, from, you know, from the dry tortugas. We get a lot of mutton snappers and permit from the spawning irrigations in the dry tortugas. And so because you're here on the border of the tropics and the temperate, you have everything that that you had, everything that that lives to the north. I mean, striped bass spawned here. And then you have all the tropical species, too. And so my friend, Dr. Grant Gilmore, in the in the in this early 70s, he set a record for most species of fish in one seine right here. I mean, a mile from where my house is. I can take you out there right now. And we can run a seine all day long. And we're gonna, I can tell you what three species we're going to catch. We're going to catch a sand perch. We're going to catch a catfish. And we might catch something in the jack clam. It's about it. It's, it's bare sand. So I saw this. I've been fishing up here since the late 70s. I'm 46 years old. And I, I, my dad brought me up here a lot uh, to fish. It's only about 45 minutes from the house where I grew up in. And... You know, it was just, you trip over the seagrass walking through here. The fishing was incredible. I mean, now I've got two boats sitting in the driveway and a four-year-old son that's ate up of fishing, and it's like, I don't even really want to go. Hmm. Wow. And that's the pathos that you're describing and the motivation to do the work that you do is to witness in your in your own lifetime, in the space of 40 years, uh, this breakdown of the ecological system. That's got to be, that's got to hurt. It, it does. And okay, it, uh, Terry, I've just got to ask, and this right. might be this might be a hard question for you to ask, but I mean, are as as a dude who's really connected to the land and the water, family's been in Florida. You've got fisher f- pictures of your family with wild bounty from a hundred years ago. Um, do the new residents of Florida? give a shit about this because it strikes me as be i mean i'm sitting here pissed off right now and i don't live there i mean just I, i'm just curious if the people that are moving in and, and retiring you know that's what we always think is like the retirees or whatever maybe that's a stereotype that's not true but like uh, do do the new residents the people coming in people who've maybe lived there for 10 years or whatever are they they don't have the same longitudinal 
uh, connection with the changes, but are they are they aware and do they care? So, you know, what it's really taken is is for these uh, these algae blooms to get so bad that they're a threat to human health. And now they are an election level issue. If you are not running on clean water, especially along the Indian River Lagoon, you are not going to win. Uh, if you're running, if you're seeking elected, uh, you know, elected office, if you want to be a county commissioner, city commissioner, state representative, congressman, you have to run on those issues. People are so damn mad, but it should not have come to this. And it's the problem of shifting baselines. Um, you know, it's it's way better than you know New York City in the middle of January in the Hudson River. You know, even even still today, <laughs> but it's you know a paucity of what in it's a tragedy from, from my, my vantage point. Wow. And it was completely preventable. And one of you guys asked me if people are doing anything about it. And I, I'd like to give a couple of people some, some, some credit who've been great leaders in this. Um, in particular, the Brevard County Commission. For years, they wasted money for their half-cent sales tax and other funds on these stupid muck dredging projects in the canals that don't do anything for the estuary. They'd throw out clams and oysters and say, oh, oysters filter 40 gallons of water a day, not when they're choking on brown tide, they die. And so this year, this spring, matter of fact, just a few months ago, they voted um, unanimously to put over 90% of the, of the of what, what should amount to be about $500 million over the life of the Hassan sales tax towards, um, towards septic to sewer conversions and, and improving their master wastewater collection systems and improving their stormwater systems. I'm really proud of them. And and each one and every member on that is a is a staunch Republican. And I don't mean to be partisan, but mm-hmm. it's it, it, it my point by saying that is that the politics of the environment are shifting radically because, because the situation got so bad and it's just, it's just so unacceptable. Well, reality is a good teacher and mm-hmm. uh, we do, you know, this is one of the reasons talking to you is important for our audience nationally is because there are few places where the connection between the health of the nearshore environment and the Bayesian estuary systems is so immediately and significantly tied to the economy of the state and the economy of communities along the shoreline. It is demonstrably true that when algal blooms are happening and red tide, brown tide situations are proliferating, uh, the economy comes to a halt visitors don't come the hotels don't get filled fishing guides don't work restaurants aren't full and so that drives a focus independent of party and politics to tackle the problem and here's a question i want to ask if you could wave a magic wand and eliminate all of the septic systems in the watershed of the indian river lagoon a would that address the problem and b how long would it take if that were to occur for this lagoon to start to to recover and become uh, can it get back to the vitality that it once had so we have two shining examples sarasota bay and tampa bay they were early adopters of the national estuary program and they had leadership through that program that understood and recognized the problem was nitrogen, largely sewage nitrogen, but also from other sources. They didn't, they were damned the torpedoes on the political implications that it, that it had. And so in the seventies, following the Clean Water Act and on into the eighties, 
they put together this these nitrogen consortiums where everybody set a target called a total maximum daily load. Right. And he said, we're going to hit that target. And they primarily achieved that target in both of those systems by by getting rid of the septic tanks and by upgrading their, their wastewater collection systems so that they had the volume to deal with the growing population and so that they were treating it to a level that most of the phosphorus and nitrogen was removed. And if you go over there now, I mean, surrounded by development, I mean, you, just, you know how dense those populations are yeah. over there, but you've got waving seagrass almost everywhere. There's some problems and we're working on them, but you've got a system in place, you've got leadership in place that for, by and large is determined not to let what happened to the to the um, Indian River Lagoon happen again over there. And I saw those water bodies in the late 70s and 80s. My father was a lawyer and he represented a bunch of banks over there and we'd go fishing. And they were just as disgusting then as the Indian River Lagoon is now. And to answer about how long, it took about 10 years. Hmm. Uh, and, the, and, this, and it's hard to say, you know, these systems are all different and the climate's changing, you know, so can it be, you know, some sense, can the Indian River Lagoon be some semblance of its former glory? Absolutely. We can't go backwards. There's no going home. Um, you know, the water's getting warmer. Uh, you know, we're going to see shifts in species and, um, you know, we're, they're catching snook on a regular basis in Georgia now in Louisiana. <laughs> so, um, tropical species are moving north. We don't know what's going to move in here um, from, you know, on, on any level of the food web. So, but we do know this, nitrogen pollution is terrible for estuaries. You have to fix that problem. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, it's, it's, I think it, if you just, it, this is a bad pun. I apologize to America, but it doesn't pass the smell test, ladies and gentlemen. Um, before we move around the, uh, the state to the Gulf side, uh, where of course, Tampa Bay, uh, and Sarasota are, I don't, I, we'd be remiss if we missed the southern tip of Florida, which uh, I'm going to include this in the Okeechobee zone. This, uh, you know, you mentioned climate change. To me, the southern part of Florida is uh, the most at risk to my mind, certainly in following the, the news, uh, very low lying, but also hydrologically fascinating. Terry, would you a gladesman here take us through what south florida is all about from a water perspective how's the water moving what have we done to modify it i know the population miami is uh, i believe the most populous city in the state or certainly if you combine you know the the neighboring uh, development areas that are all kind of compacted in there but take us through give us a tour of the southern part of florida sure well the liquid heart of it is is lake of Echobe. And I guess that's a good place to start. Um, Lake Okeechobee um, has a was diked in in the late twenties, I think, or thirties, mid thirties. It's by, it's now ringed by the Herbert Hoover Dike, which is in basically an earthen dam that they're trying. The Corps is trying to uh, shore up a bit. Um, good luck on that. So it's basically used as a reservoir now, and all the pollution that comes down its tributary, the the, the Kissimmee River, all the way from Orlando, winds up in the lake. And historically, there were um, concentrated animal feeding operations, CAFOs, dairy farms on the north side of the lake that dumped just tons of phosphorus from, from terms of animal waste into the, into the, into the estuary. Um, we we back pumped from the, around the farms on the southern part of the, of the lake. We bumped, back pumped irrigation water. And by the 80s, it was just a, just a hot mess. Okay, of, of, ho, ho, let me just pause real fast. Sure. Are you telling me that Lake Okeechobee is not a natural lake? It's we 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 created a uh, an earthen mound basically a, a dike 
and the water then started piling up on the other side. Is that what you're telling me? Or was there it, it was a natural lake, but we dammed it. Okay. We basically put a circular dam around it. Okay. It, 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 we used to sheet what they call sheet flow. flow was that slowly. a was that a flood control measure or was that an effort to like, you know, drain the swamp, so to speak? Or maybe those are the same thing, but both. Okay. Go um, ahead. Continue. Continue where we were in the eighties. Anyway, the the um the, the by the eighties the the lake was just you know in, in the warm months was just just a cesspool. Still is. I think it's something like eighty five percent of it right now is covered in a in a cyanobacteria bloom. Wow. So have you uh, fished it? I've fished it. I grew up on. It. I caught my first fish on there. The first ten pound bass I ever saw was was floating dead, bloated in a pile <laughs> of algae, and it was one of the, my earliest memories. And it's, I I think I attribute that I, I i'm inclined to attribute that moment to be me becoming a conservation advocate <laughs> so um, is, is it i mean is it still i mean i i i what this is what i know about it, is it's not very deep mm-hmm. uh it's really big because you can see it on a map uh ladies and gentlemen it's a big yeah, satellite old, photo yeah you see this big water spot in the middle of florida that's lake okeechobee uh so it's not very deep you say in the summertime it gets quite warm i mean is it Suitable? I mean, eighty percent uh, algal bloom. Do people go and recreate on this bad boy? They do. Wow. I, I my my son has never been on it. Yeah. And one of the problems that uh, this is a very complex system and is a huge contributor, as I understand it, that the role of the lake in nearshore water quality along the uh, Atlantic shoreline of Florida and on the Gulf side can be tied to Lake Obechobee because of the discharge channels from the lake uh, move to the east and to the west coast of Florida. Is that right? And can you talk about the connection between the lake's quality and what's in it and the nearshore waters that are so con- uh, a concern to you and your organization? Sure. So they, the Army Corps um, basically channelized the Clusatchee River, which runs over to Fort Myers, and, and dug a ditch that artificially connected Lake Okeechobee to the Indian River Lagoon here in, here in Stewart via the St. Lucie River, uh, which is one of the Indian River Lagoon's southern tributaries. And so when the lake gets too high, um, they discharge east and west because most of the land to the south of the lake is now in, in agriculture. And so I could go on and on and on about this. I've lived it. And, you know, Agriculture used to be one of the biggest contributors of, of pollution to the lake and to other places. They pretty much cleaned up their act with best management practices, but the water has no place to flow in the natural direction that it wants to go. It just doesn't. We're building some projects. We built some projects that are, are should ameliorate that somewhat, maybe even significantly. But for now, the second the Army Corps opens the locks, that this bright green I mean, this this water is chartreuse with with cyanobacteria blue green algae and so what happens they release it in such huge volumes that basically the lake just slides over on top of the salt water you get a lens of fresh water on top of the salt water and the algae are running out of nutrients to feed on until they hit all the septic tank effluent and and other sources of land-based sources of pollution but a lot of it's septic tank and Yuck. superfood in the St. Lucie, and it turns the it, it goes from being this this veneer of, of green on the top of the surface to this people call it like like guacamole texture. It's like often like a foot wow. thick, and it's to- and then it then it hits salt water and it dies, and it releases all of those toxins. 
into the air, aerosolizes them and releases them into the water. We've had we've had dogs die here too. My two of my hunting clients they've, they've lost dogs so they drank that water. Um, you know, we're not certain as to what the actual threshold is from the the uh, BMMA and um, microsystem toxins and everything else uh, on human health, but it's thought that they can cause you know Lou Gehrig's disease and Alzheimer's and and other thing issues with child development. I mean, I've I've evacuated my house twice because of my young son in, in the four years he's been alive and gone to live in my family's cabin in Wyoming because of these discharges. And this is what, you know, back to what got, finally got people to the point where we're going to vote you out of office until, until you fix this. This is the severity of the issue. And this is what, what got us to the, this political new day, so to speak. Doesn't it just piss you off that we always have to wait till it gets this bad before we get serious about any environmental problems in America? It seems to be the way of the world. I will uh, say that uh, Governor DeSantis, uh, who took office, what, a couple years ago, has uh, at least raised the profile of these issues. And and I think you're correct in, in, in reading that is if he doesn't respond to this problem effectively, they will vote him out of office because it's that big of a deal. Uh, but the, the management of Lake o- o- Okeechobee and its connection to the coastal waters of the state is uh, something I read about a lot. Uh, you mentioned that the water doesn't get to go where it wants to go. And uh, I remember back, I don't know, the River of Grass it was called, and I think there was a, it was a documentary, and I think the National Geographic did a thing on it. The sheet flow from southern Florida used to you know, move across the landscape on its way south toward the Keys, didn't it? And this yes. damming of Okeechobee and then the rerouting of the water to the West Coast and the East Coast when it's full of this nutrients and toxic uh, cyanobacteria and other things is just been, you know, God bless all the people back in the day who thought they were doing the right thing. But we have replumbed this state in such a way as to create massive problems in environmental coastal water quality. And it just seems like what a Herculean task for the state, for your organization and the people of Florida to undo this disaster. Is that too strong a word? Uh, it's a disaster. There's no doubt about it. Um, but, you know, we, we, I've worked on literally every legislation I've worked on since seventh, the seventh grade. I wrote a, an essay and, and published it as like a poster at a science fair when I was in seventh grade called Everglades Restoration, Man Destroys, Man Restores. And for a while, I was like um, that little girl from Sweden who's you know, the champion for climate change. I was in Greta. Palm Beach, Greta, thank you. So I'm in the front of the Palm Beach Post and Sun Sentinel is, you know, the kid, you know, we got to do this for our kids. And and yeah, I've never really stopped, you know, except for a couple of years in college when I just couldn't pay attention to it. I've never really stopped working on it. And you know, we've got over 50,000 acres of stormwater treatment areas now that used to be farmland. And it's some of the best fishing and hunting and bird watching in the world. I feel good about that. Um, you know, we've got, we've done a, a lot of these, you know, it's been too slow and the time, the timeline too long, but we've done a lot of restoration work around the Everglades that is making things better. We, you know, for example, my, my dear friend, Don Sheriffs, who worked on this stuff forever for a number of organizations, you know, they, they got the Tamiami trail raised so we can get water down into Florida Bay where it's needed. The question is, can we get it clean enough? The temptation is to shunt dirty stormwater around uh, faster than the filtration marshes and other uh, things that are in place can actually get the nitrogen out. And then, you know, you just all you're doing is discharging dirty water into another estuary. 
So there's a lot of challenges left to go, but there's enough success stories that, you know, it keeps me sane. So you, I think that like, here we are, we're, you're, we're, we've got a Gladesman on the line. Uh, Terry, do five minutes or whatever on the Everglades National Park. Obviously, uh, it was a Herculean effort back in the day to create this national park. It was totally different than uh, the other parks in the system. And it was due to, uh, frankly, uh, your forebears, people uh, who, like you, were dedicated to, uh, <laughs> from the seventh grade, you know, dedicated their lives to uh, setting aside the Everglades. As you pick up the torch and and obviously look at the whole state and you're looking at at a bigger picture, but what, what does the Everglades mean to you, the national park, that feature? What are you learning from the Everglades these days? Uh, as a as a kind of a conservation conservation uh, cornerstone of the state. Yeah, so Everglades National Park is a fascinating place, and I encourage everybody to go that's never been. I encourage you to go in the, in the winter when the mosquitoes won't carry you off. Actually, they're not going to bother to carry you off. They're just going to suck all your blood off out and <laughs> leave you to flop on the grass. But um, but anyway, they you know I I, I fished down there my whole life, and uh, I know that water much of it anyway very well and you know sadly back of i think it's 2015 we lost we had a massive seagrass die off and there's a raging debate between two camps of scientists whether it's was nutrient pollution nitrogen pollution from pushing water down there too quickly or um for over many years or whether it was um due to a hyper salinity because for a few years it didn't get any water at all and um i i'm of the, or the, both the, i'm of the uh of the opinion, I'm not a scientist, but that it's a combination of the two. And the point is that we need to get clean, fresh water to Florida Bay. And that's not happening. And where is Florida Bay for our audience? It's located at the tip, isn't it? It's, it's basically the, the between the tip and the Florida Keys, mm-hmm. and about as far south as a little far south of, of Island Murata. Let's, let's talk a little bit about that, uh, that region of the state. Uh, I know, and we wanted to learn more about, I'm sorry, I don't want to cut off the question you were answering, which is about the Everglades and what, what we're learning about the management of that system over the years. P- please keep going on that. So um, we've learned that fish, good fisheries management works, that science-based catch limits work. Um, you know, the, the fish populations down there are still fairly healthy, but it's hard to do uh, uh, good fisheries management with, with declining habitat because the habitats just become less productive, they produce less fish. So we have, we know that we have to keep a close eye on our fish stocks and that's imperative. And we're doing a pretty good job of that. Um, to the rest of your question, what else are we learning down there? We're learning that sea level rise is, is sorry, is a bitch. And I mean, that's this, it's, it's marching right inland and, and tearing up the peat in the, in the freshwater parts of the glades and sea and mangroves are taking over. And, you know, we're, we're trading one type of habitat for another. Um, but, you know, certain species need one type of habitat versus the other. And, and you know, the, the freshwater ecosystems are losing. Let's please explain that a little bit more about this conversion of natural habitat systems as a result of saltwater intrusion uh, you mentioned that sea level rise also contributes to the swamping or drowning of septic systems and screws up that treatment 
minimal treatment system. But talk about the why sea level matters uh, from a habitat standpoint. What, what is the conversion going on and what species benefit and what, what do we lose when that happens? You can see this happening in almost any estuary in the state. Um, you know, whether you're over in the Big Bend or um, on the, the North Fork of the St. Lucie, Loxatchee River or Florida or the, you know, where all those rivers come out um, down into Florida, Florida Bay, like the Shark River Slough and all that. So the, the, the water's encroaching and our, 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 our substrate is porous. It's highly transmissive. It's not like we can just build a dam. You know, the water will always, a coastal engineer friend of mine told me, I'm good, but the water always wins. And the water always wins, especially here where there's no, um, you know, there's just no way to hold it back. It'll just come up through the, it'll just come up through the floorboard, so to speak. And so between the hurricanes and beating down, you know, some of the vegetation and, and making the, making an, easy, an easier entrance for the, um, for the water. And just for the, you know, the sheer volume of sea level rise, it's, it's, it's pushing in past the mangrove boundary, which is the estuary, the, the brackish mixing boundary into the freshwater systems. And it's, it's killing them. Um, and, and, uh, and droughts, periodic droughts that dry out the peat that hold the fresh water in place in these systems aren't helpful either, but are not just sea level rise, our, our weather's becoming more extreme. We're getting more extreme droughts. We're getting bigger hurricanes, wetter hurricanes. You know, we're getting, it's just, it's not the same as it was. And, and, and the synergy between those, those, those problems is, is, is very problematic. So we, we start to see the die-off, and I think this has been reported. I think we've covered it in Coastal News today, but there has been a significant decline in the uh, amount of mangrove along the Florida shoreline as that dies off, as there isn't enough fresh water in the nearshore system. What species, and then we end up with, what do you end up with when the mangroves disappear? They're replaced by what? And what does it do to the biota, the the communities of flora and fauna in these systems when the mangroves go away. So, so to be clear, you know, mangroves are a salt, salt marsh plant. They can oh. live in hypersaline conditions. Okay, they, sorry. So they're the ones that are, I mean, they're, they're being in places drowned or ripped out by hurricanes and things. Mostly it's people um, ripping them out for development that's been the problem. Oh. Okay. Okay. So, but it, which is, you know, stupid because, like I said, the water always wins. You can build the best seawall in the world. It's still going to come up through the, through the earth or, or it's going to, you know, eventually the seawall erode when the mangroves are the world's best shoreline protection. I'm sure I could find a coastal engineer to argue that point with me, but. Um, oh, yeah, but they're out there. They, they, they I mean, they, they do a great job protecting against storm surge and, and, and sea level rise because they actually they're called walking trees or the, you know, the old glazemen called them walking trees because their prop roots extend out and they trap sediment underneath it. So they can actually grow the land out into the water and, and stave off sea level rise in the process of doing so if they're allowed to do so. Very cool plant. I got to say. Cool and they're fundamental to our fisheries production. I mean, just, just about everything in the snapper grouper and Jack complex needs, needs it, you know, snook, um, tarpon, uh, they they grow up in the little creeks, uh, um, in in really shallow, often anoxic waters where other predators can't get to them. So they're just hugely important nursery habitats. Bonefish, um, same same deal. Um, if, you, you name it. If, if you wanted to build a like a latticed 
structure to absorb the energy of a storm. I don't you you couldn't do better than just the mangrove system. It's really smart. And Peter, what I do think we've been seeing a lot of on our uh, news feed on Coastal News Today, certainly over the past couple of years, is that the mangroves have been migrating north as the temperatures have warmed up. And, you know, their big enemy is the freeze. And as the climate has warmed, at least one theory could be, uh, I'll go along with it, that uh, their range has moved into a more northerly area. But Terry, uh, I believe that they are then pushing out, you know, they're with with your uh, mangroves coming in, you know, you've you've you'll eliminate, I guess, some grass, uh, some other types of plant life that would otherwise, uh, you know, be in that area. So there's a um, interesting young scientist over at the University of South Florida. Actually, I think he just left for uh, another pasture. But um, uh, last name is McCarthy, and he's been taking um, satellite images of these changes um, in, in comparing them to historic photos and yeah, for sure, along, the, along Florida's Gulf Coast and for sure, you know, up there from Cedar Key northward, you know, north of t- the Tampa area, those coastal Spartina marshes are starting to have little mangrove islands that, that make it through the year and, um, you know, make it through the winters. And, you know, there's other species that have gone as far north as, as, um, as Louisiana. So that's what's going to happen, and it'll be interesting to see how fast it happens. Very interesting. Before we turn the corner here and go on to the golf side, uh, which we'll, I'm really looking forward to, let's talk about that tip. The the Did you call it the Bay of Florida or the Gulf of Florida? Florida Bay. Florida the Florida Bay. Bay. Florida Bay. Yeah. Tell the, the, the Keys. Okay. What's, whew, what, a, what a cool spot of the state, the Keys. Uh, Florida Bay. What what's going on there? Uh, talk talk to us about that spot. Well, um, you know the most of the coral on the Great Florida Coral Reef Track is now dead from a disease um, and some other stressors that at least the experts I trust the most say is is sewage driven. Um, and so you know the, the 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 good old you know the dive tourism, the fishing tourism, and the keys is 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 under, you know, is in, is in a sad state of affairs. Um, the good news is, is that 20 years after we told them to do this, the, the, the most of the keys has gotten off septic tanks and cesspits and have, and, and have, um, have, have, have converted to a master wastewater collection right. system. Advanced we, treatment. We, we just got to pause here. So you're saying that out there they were building septic tanks on the keys whole keys relied on them were these just cesspits. These like acre sized cesspits are just full of human ex- excrement. Wow. So you would get together with your neighbors and be like, uh, let's build a cesspit together. Yeah. yeah. That's remarkable. That is a remarkable solution for, so, uh, well, for managing that folks, problem. I mean, as, as far back as the nineties, you know, top scientists like Dr. Dr. Brian LaPointe and, and Dr. Peter Burrill and others, they went out there and did all the stable isotope, um, you, know, night, you know, pollution source studies. And they proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was sewage that was killing the reef. And the local elected officials were like, it's too expensive. No, it's not. Or they bring in somebody to say it was climate change or something else. Of course, it's not ever just one thing. But they finally got serious about it. And I really want to give credit to Representative Holly Rothschild um, who's, who represents the Keys. She's the state representative from there. Uh, she knew this. She's an avid angler. She grew up half in Alaska and, and half in, in Florida, a fishing family. 
and it just appalled her. And she she championed getting the bonds and everything else that they did in the state monies, um, and federal matches, and you name it. Uh, and she wasn't alone, but uh, uh, she deserves a lot of credit for it. To finally, get that get that to get them onto a master wastewater collection system. And as a result, the EPA monitoring showing that the water quality is improving. So here again is an opportunity for hope. Here it it was it, it may not be too late for the for that system. It may not. It may have gotten the. It, it at least has a chance to rebound into something productive. Uh, you know, when you look at the history of development in Florida and go back to the early days of the get rich quick schemes that were uh, developed uh, and and sold uh, lots in the Everglades, uh, in marshes, uh, there's always been, at least for me, I, I'm not a Floridian. I've never lived in Florida. I've worked in Florida uh, over the years, but I've always had this sense that there was this kind of get rich quick mentality in the development community and and I think you mentioned a lot of developers just are impatient and can't wait for publicly paid infrastructure systems like wastewater treatment and sewage treatment to be installed before they uh, uh, line up the lots and build houses and start selling them. Um, if that is an accurate description, roughly speaking, of the history, I'm wondering in, in your communication with uh, legislators and elected officials and interests, including the development community, is there ever a mea culpa? Is there ever a sense of, you know what, we really didn't do this the best way we could have? Is, is there a recognition of responsibility on behalf of the development community, you know, and the officials who let this propagate for so many decades? That's a tough question. Um, I, I know some developers who, you know, have a conscience and, and want to build from here on out in sustainable ways um, and not on and that by definition means not on septic tanks. Right. Um, I, I, increasingly, they've come to the table over the water supply issues. Um, there's a bunch of there's a I can't remember the, the the name of it right now, but there's a basically a task force on water supply in the Orlando area, and everybody's come to the table. Is we we got to recycle every last drop. We're running out, okay. and uh, so that's driven them to the table. Um, but by and large, they've pushed the property rights agenda and um, made it more and more difficult to challenge unde unsustainable development. And uh, you know, I, I think that they, there's a lot of room for maturity moral maturity there in that in that industry hmm. so the you know it's not our fault kind of mentality we have our rights you can't tell us what to do kind of mentality uh it leaves the option of solutions to shift the responsibility and the cost to the general public and uh as you said we've got to buy we've got to sell bonds we the profiteer the, i'm not going to say profiteers the folks who developed and made the money on these developments over the years, took the cheap way out and installed septic, go to the bank, put their money in, move on. They're long gone. Uh, there's no financial connection uh, anymore. And uh, the Florida taxpayers and taxpayers around the United States are in the position of having what must be done. We have to take these problems on if we don't want to live in a, a degraded environment that's so critical naturally and it's critical for the economy so it ends up being a public cost does that bug the shit out of you sometimes 
It does. And I was having a, this conversation with my friend, con former Congressman Bob Inglis, the other day. Bob's an interesting guy. I think you guys are going to talk to him at some point, but he's a legal scholar. And he's point and he's also he's also a biblical scholar. And he was pointing out to me all these passages in the in the Old Testament or the Torah, depending on what your faith or orientation is, that say it's ex explicitly wrong to pass your costs off on your neighbor. Explicitly wrong. I mean, you just don't do that. And it's that's the way business is done in Florida now. So it's 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 morally outraging and it's financially outraging. Um, you know, so much things, so many you know, the natural resources aren't just the things that suffer. It's, you know, the roads are too crowded, the schools are too crowded, you, know, you name it. There's no concurrency in the in the parlance of, uh, of planning, really. So, yeah, it's it's really frustrating. Terry, uh, let's we've been going for about an hour and we're about uh, halfway done. Gee, have we done an hour already? We've done an hour. So yeah. I want to keep the tour moving. Let's yeah, talk about yeah, let's the. Move up the southwestern part of the state this region here you know so if, as we rounded we've gone through the everglades and now we're in i guess what where where would this be the uh 10,000 miles <laughs> yeah yeah right this area and yeah. this is where manasota key is where peter and i worked and uh fort myers and all the way up to saint pete i guess uh is up there uh tell us about um this region and what is on your radar in this area well, the 10,000 Islands, are, are it's a, a national wildlife refuge. And again, it's a place I encourage everybody to go again in the winter when the bugs aren't too bad. Mm. But um, it's it's just this huge labyrinth of uh, mangroves and, and, and oyster reefs and, and a, a type of reef that was formed um, by, a, by a, a marine snail. It's a fossil reef. Huh. And... Uh, it's, but it's disappearing, and it's a habitat that, if I remember correctly, from my friends, my, my friend Mike, Dr. Mike Savarese, it's only been around for like I don't know, it's ten thousand years or something, and it's disappearing quickly because of rising sea levels and and stronger hurricanes. Um, but it's it's a unique laboratory where there's really not any development, so we get to see what climate change is doing uh, to uh, to an, a, a relatively natural ecosystem. Um, so, it's, but then up from there, you've got uh, Naples and Marco, um, uh, Marco Island and Naples Bay. And there's a classic case of a, of a eutrophic estuary, largely at the hands of, 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 of wastewater mismanagement. Um, and you've got a really low lying area there. The, the entire community is really low lying and they're it's one of those vulnerable areas in the state. Fortunately, the Collier County Commission, and that's that, that area, they've, gotten very serious about a, a resilience plan and, and um, we're talking quite openly about this climate change and, and, and what, how we need to address it. And I'm very proud of them for doing that. We worked with them quite a bit on that. So yeah. And then, then you've got Cape Romano right there. And I think you guys are the coastal engineers. You can probably talk better about this than me, but um, um, you know, the Cape, Cape Romano right there is sort of the Southern terminus of our, of our beach or our Gulf coast beaches. And it kind of blocks sand transport, if I remember correctly. And that's what it has allowed these mangrove marshes to flourish you know, where they haven't been replaced by a, by development. But as you get, you know, for, up from, you know, the north side of Naples northward, you know, you, you get on, um, you, know, you get this more of the sandy beaches that, are, that, that the, the state's famous for. Hmm. It uh, beautiful area. It, it is. And, and as you, 
are, are we are we I appreciate the fact that they that you're recognizing the local governments and and uh, members of the legislature at the state and federal level who are serious about this. You're not a voice in the wilderness as an organization. There is an understanding of these questions. Uh, uh, I appreciate also that there is hopefulness in the re, in, in these systems that if we uh, can quit abusing them, uh, they recover and can can come back uh, if we don't tip them too far over the edge. So I, I really do appreciate that. And uh, as you're looking at this section of the Florida shoreline, uh, the southeast coast up to the middle of the Gulf shoreline, uh, is there a is there are there examples of progress in this region? Mm-hmm. So. Um Lee County, which is the Fort Myers area and and Charlotte County. And I got to give a shout out to my friend, Commissioner Bill Truex in Charlotte County. We know Bill. Oh, you do know Bill. Okay. Good guy. Yeah. Great guy. He, uh, they've, they're, they're moving as fast as, um, finances allow on septic to sewer conversions. So, um, bless them for, for doing that, um, in recognizing the problem because it's a really politically difficult problem for, for local elected officials. If you're going to do a septic to sewer conversion, that means that the that the the, the new ratepayer is going to have a water bill that he didn't used to have. Right. And so a lot of people over there, really around the state, are on fixed incomes. And so how do you do this equitably? It's it's a tough one. And fortunately, there's a lot of creative financing that I could go on about for hours uh, to make it less painful, and in in some cases, not really painful at all. But the costs of inaction are just unacceptable. Right. I, so, I really like that point about the the political difficulty at the at the local level, and this is you know you, it begs for the kind of state revolving funds that were created by EPA and exist in all of the states around the country. The the kind of federally supported financing horsepower necessary to take care of these water infrastructure issues, particularly related to sewage and wastewater. Uh, because the, as you're saying, if you're an elected official and you're pushing for this uh, uh, conversion from septic to uh, systems, uh, what you're saying to your voters is these hookup charges can be in the thousands of dollars for us to get the pipe down your street and for you to connect to it, and then you have a new bill. And I really appreciate also that you uh, mentioned that in when you have a large retirement age population that relies on social security or fixed income uh, these are really tough problems and uh, is the state stepping in to bridge the financial gap here Um, you mentioned creative financing are they figuring that out figuring out the politics of how to execute these changes the answer is yes Uh, the last two sessions in, in Tallahassee legislature were just just inspiring and again, Holly Roshine from the Keys, she chaired the the subcommittee on appropriation subcommittee on ag and the environment, and she made sure both years that there was a ton of money for for wastewater and stormwater improvements. Now, as I think I said earlier, this year the governor had to go back and veto some of that and put it in the in the reserve in case you know our economy just collapses and you know he, he's barely able to keep you know basic government services open. But they've stepped up. It was supposed to be a about 500, about 500 million all told for, um, I'm sorry, about 600, uh, 650 million all told 
for wastewater and stormwater. And there were lots of 10 and 15 and $20 million buckets that could also be used for that. It was record funding for Everglades restoration. We worked right. hard on that. Um, and so, and, but most importantly, the clean waterways act, which we just passed and, um, it creates a new pot of money specifically for wastewater infrastructure. And that's good for a number of reasons. It should mean there's at least consistent funding for it and hopefully at fairly high levels. And second, it does away with the unfairness in the process. You know, before it was, you know, X, this, this representative from this district wanted 5 million for a septic to sewer conversion. This person wanted yeah. to improve their stormwater. And so it became a, a you know, basically a power struggle of this, who, who got that money. It wasn't right. an equi equitable system. And that was fixed by this this bill. I'm really proud of the legislature for doing that. Yeah, it should be. And I think Florida, there are examples. Florida is not, I don't want to leave the impression that I think the state is just a, just a big mess because there are examples of, of, of really good thinking when it comes to these issues in the state uh, and programmatic uh, uh, approaches that are uh, functional that's true on beach restoration. It's true on the Forever Florida program that acquires and, and buys open space uh, to limit development. And it's good to see that the state is moving into a system of uh, financing for these wastewater treatment conversions that are so essential to the nearshore water quality and the health of the environment and the economy of the state. Um, let's move up, uh, say, from Charlotte and Sarasota County up to Tampa Bay and around the Panhandle, and I'll just pause and say I've had the opportunity to work on Navarre Beach and a couple of shoreline projects up in that region of the Panhandle, and they are, I think, without doubt, in my opinion, the most beautiful beaches in America. These uh, just because of the sand quality, this ninety-eight percent, you know, quartz sand, brilliant white, gorgeous turquoise water. I just think, you know. How's the state doing in this uh, upper part? It'd be of, a shame to see that water turn to stinky it, guacamole. Yeah, wouldn't it? I mean... I would hate that. Are we? Uh, how's the state doing in this region up through the panhandle? Uh, progress? Problems? What do, what do you think? Well, first of all, I want to thank you for your work on Navarre Beach. And most of my friends will probably about to will keel over in disbelief as they hear me pay a coastal engineer a, um, a compliment because I've been one of your harshest critics of the beach management system in Florida. But y'all did, a, you and Randy Parkinson did a great job finding the, the right sand for that beach and restoring that beach the right way. And there's, and because of the criticism that we've, we, I and others have, 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 have unleashed on, on that, that, on that industry um, and some good relationships with people in that industry, the beach management pro program today is something we should be pretty proud of. And so I, I appreciate you guys' hard work on that. I know you had to work very hard to find that that vein of sand out there. Yep, yep. Um, turned out so, nice. Big yeah, dune. I love it. the dune yeah. system. But in in terms of um in terms of uh, water quality, you know the you get north of Cedar Key, right? Cedar Key northward, you know you're out of the footprint of um you know the big metropolitan areas, and the um those places are really healthy. Uh, they've got some problems, but they're not they're they're fixable. Um, so in, you know, the, for example, uh, Senator Simpson, who's the, um, incoming Senate president, he just put, I can't remember how much, and these like $20 million towards getting the, um, the septic tanks out of Homosassa Springs and, um, 
Steenhatchee River, and that'll take about take up about like forty eight percent of the nitrogen, if I remember correctly. So some good things are being done there. Um, yeah, Tampa's spending a ton of money in their wastewater and in stormwater infrastructure. Can't say enough things about good things about Congresswoman Castor. She just chaired the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. They just issued a report that our organization helped inform major sections on wastewater and stormwater resiliency um, throughout that in, that in that report. And it's providing a blueprint for communities like Tampa and St. Pete and others to to follow. So um, again, you know, I, I never want to. I, I know I've made Florida sound like an awful place in some places, and I'm angry about some of those those things. But there really is re reason for for hope. Um, we've we've had we we're finally getting the leadership we really needed for a long time. Well, a couple corrections here. Uh, neither Peter and I or our coastal engineers. Oh, I'm sorry. I yeah, thought no, you were. We, well, we work with the engineers. What we okay. do is the, uh, the politics and the financing and the community, okay. uh, the, you okay. know, work with the communities to understand the projects. And we're the communicators. We're the, okay. we're the, yeah, we're the facilitator right. guys, but, and, uh, but, but uh, hand uh, in hand with, we, have, we have no problem, uh, you know, being lumped together. We've worked with them and they're really important. Uh, can we go up to the just the northern? What do you call this? The, the panhandle. panhandle. Yeah, Terry, give us a little panhandle talk. What's yeah. going on up there? A lot of development pressure in the panhandle. Yeah, right it's now. the uh, I've seen I've seen a lot of a lot of pressure up there, and Tallahassee's up there, right? Yeah, which is interesting. You, maybe a little coast. home court advantage. Yeah, I would you, say. Yeah, you'd think. You'd think. Uh, well, there's a reason why it's up there, <laughs> <laughs> Orlando, um, but. So I'll tell you a story about the panhandle that kind of sums it up. I have a good friend, Jeff Tilly, who I represent periodically, and he, he grows, he grows oysters down around alligator point, which is just a little below and a little bit West of Tallahassee, beautiful area, just stunning coastal marshes and beaches and um, fishing's amazing. Um, you like to catch snook and redfish and I'm sorry, not snook, but trout and redfish and, and uh, tarpon and lots of, I mean, all the coastal stuff. It's, it's about as pristine as anything that's left in America. Um, but, and, and part of the reason why I like going to Tallahassee so much, is I get to sneak down there and go fishing. But anyway, Jeff's been growing oysters out there for some years. He's been very successful at it. And that is an incredibly hard thing to do. He calls me about a year ago and says, you get this, the states about, or the, the, the various powers of beer about to issue a development permit for like a 5,000, um, unit, uh, trailer park all on septic tanks about 15 yards from his client for his oyster leases Ugh. yeah so it's planning planning and more planning you know so it's it's just we need to be we need a department of community affairs again that's functional more than functional it's effective um and you know we just we can't do this and it, so the, the 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 that particular permit was pulled for the time being um uh, we're prepared to to go to war with a developer if we have to, but um, but that's kind of that's 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 kind of a parable of what yeah what shouldn't happen in the future in Florida. Well, damn it, you know it, it, we know, we've learned lessons. We uh -huh. you know this is the hard part about the real world and about politics and economics. Uh, is uh, we there isn't any doubt about the wisdom or the foolishness of installing 5,000 septic tanks next to a pristine waterway when you already know what the hell it does over time. 
And yet, uh, you would think uh, there would be sort of a consensus. Let's not make the same mistake. We we are all for pro. We're, we like development. Development's important for the economy. It's all th this and that. All the economic arguments are real, but let's do it the right way. Let's quit passing the problems forward. Let's quit undermining and wrecking these incredible resources that are also valuable for recreation and fishing and oyster production and just the joy and beauty of the incredible state of Florida. Uh, so it, it takes folks like you and I think leadership around the state. It's not, as I say, you're not a lone wolf on this thing. I, I wish you the best on it, uh, Terry, because uh, I, I'm, it can get better. Uh, we can do better. This is true in Florida and it's true in all the coastal states and Damn it, there's a lot of room to get better in Texas, too. Uh, but we can do this better, and uh, it takes real skill and political savviness and uh, coalitions and collaboration to execute the better way. Uh, and it takes talking about it. Yeah. That's what we do. We do, do a lot of the part. we do a lot of the just getting comfortable with the language, which is why, Terry, this has been a really productive and I think informative show. You know, obviously your focus is in the water, which we really appreciate, and in the water quality and this issue of septic tanks. And we focus a lot on many other issues. But they're all, as I like to say, it's the swirl of climate change. All of this stuff is yeah. swirling and blending together. And we need to be comfortable talking about these things next to each other and, and connected to each other. So I, I, I got a lot out of this. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, final thoughts, Terry. Gosh, I have so much to say about this. I just, I guess to conclude in the panhandle section, um, the the Nature Conservancy deserves a lot of credit for a couple of um, large land purchases, of very pristine lands. Um, part One part adjacent to the St. Mark's um, National Wildlife Refuge, which is another one of my favorite places, and another over in the Alligator Point area. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it's back to planning, you know, we nobody's against development we just got to do it smart you know right. we need to conserve lands while, while we grow it and we need to make sure that our infrastructure is in place and modernize to do it and it, it's really not that hard it really isn't but you know i appreciate you guys having me on 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 the show and um and if any of the listeners ever want to reach out to me my my email is um t gibson t-g-i-b-s-o-n at a-w-s project.org and uh, and I'd be happy to chat with you and help, you know, help plug you in to help. Great. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Terry Gibson. He's the Director of Government Affairs for the American Water Security Project, a nonprofit headquartered in St. Pete, Florida. Uh, one of the foot soldiers in the battle to make the American shoreline a better place. Uh, Terry, thanks for your dedication to the cause and uh, for educating us about the complex issues of water quality and water supply issues in the great state of Florida. We really enjoyed the discussion, and I sure learned a lot. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you, Peter and Tyler.